Stand up. Be seated. Stand up. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Good to see you all here this evening. If you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we'll arrive there after a few introductory comments. Though it's been 159 years ago, the haunting words of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg's a- Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, still drifts down to our time in haunting words, especially when you consider the casualties at Gettysburg. Or John F. Kennedy's inaugural address in 1961, a speech that only consisted of 1,355 words, and yet his words, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, are words that uh, many of those who are older and even those who are historians can remember well. Or two years later, Martin Luther King would bring forth a speech where he orated, uh, I have a dream. Those speeches were incredible speeches that have come down to us in time, and though they, in a sense, have, uh, are in the past, uh, and historical, spe- historical speeches, all the speeches have gone down in history. The other thing that stands out about these three men is that all three of them were assassinated. And not only that, they were thought to be assassinated because of the convictions that they held deep down in their souls that uh, many really repudiated and really didn't like the things that they stood for, maybe even the words that they said. But nevertheless, their words have come down to us. There are even monuments that have been erected on their behalf so that we would not forget the contribution that they made to our society. And so their voices, they drift down to us from the, the past. They fill the air with a, a nostalgic sacredness uh, about them. But there are words of another individual that come to us almost 2,000 years later. Uh, he was the first martyr of the church, and his name was Stephen. There are no monuments that have been erected for him. We really don't know where he spoke the message or where he made his defense or where he gave his testimony concerning about the great purposes of God or Jesus Christ and being the central figure of what the scriptures are about. Even though those things have not happened, his speech is one that has been recorded in, in God's eternal word. And that makes his speech different from that of Abraham Lincoln or uh, John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King. It makes his speeches different because in reality, as Americans, those speeches of those three men may mean something to us. But if you live in Europe or if you live in Asia or if you were to live in Africa or South America or, or India, there's a good chance that those speeches mean very little to them as countries or as citizens of their nation because it's not about them. We hold those speeches as something special to us because they were Americans and the speeches that they had, to, uh, that they made were speeches that directly affected us in some kind of a way. But Stephen's, his speech or his testimony or his witness or his defense, whatever you would like to call it, 
His words are eternal because they not only speak to us as Americans, but they speak to us as humans. And so the, his words are that to humanity, and it speaks to the spiritual side of men. And so they are applicable to human beings no matter where they live. And so it doesn't matter what continent you live in or what country or what part of the hemisphere you live. They are words that are important uh, to individuals. So they have gone down as a record of eternal significance. This morning I share with you just a little bit about the background of Stephen's defense. And basically what I did this morning is I cherry-picked four Old Testament characters out of that defense. I tried to give you an overview so that you saw the central ideal of the text, but I thought this evening that maybe we would try to maybe drill a little bit deeper into the defense and see exactly what really is going on here because these words that he spoke they're important, so I hope that we can hear the echo and, and maybe even the passion. The passion that goes beyond how I'm you know, preaching the lesson, but the passion of what was behind the intent of Stephen's defense. Because the lines were born from a courageous heart of a man who was prepared to die. Stephen was not dumbfounded or he was not unaware of the significance of this defense. He was not unaware of how the Jewish leaders reacted to the good news concerning Jesus Christ. When you talk about Stephen, the first time we are introduced to Stephen is over in Acts, the sixth chapter. And you remember it opens up with the Grecian widows making a complaint at the church of Jerusalem that they are being neglected at the serving of tables and, and they're wanting someone to take care of that. And so the apostles said, listen, we, we have a job that we need to do that is not about serving tables, but about preaching the word. And so you need to choose from among yourselves seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and bring them to us and they will become those who are going to serve these tables. And Stephen was one of those individuals. But he wasn't just a servant in the church. As you read on, Luke records for us that, that Stephen was not just this servant, but you find that he is one who is going about and he is performing signs and wonders. And not only that, he is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that there is a synagogue of the Jews called the Freedmen. The freedmen are thought to have been Jews who had once been slaves and now they have been set free and they have, be, they have began a synagogue that is made up of freed Jews, if you will. And they hear the message that Stephen is preaching and when they hear that, they became upset about it. And they are so enraged by his message and what he is doing concerning Jesus Christ that they actually go out and they almost... Well, the word seems to indicate that they enlist some men to come along and to bring forth some false testimony concerning Stephen. Some believe that the word really lends itself to the idea that they are paying them. They are paying the money to bring forth a false testimony. And the false testimony gets the ear of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were 70 men uh, who were... Well, they were the supreme court of the Jews, if you will. And this accusation rang out, and in verse 13, 13b of Acts 6, it says, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. So here is the 
charge that's being made against Stephen, they're saying, number one, uh, that he had blasphemed Moses and God. He has blasphemed, he has dishonored the law, okay? And one of the highest characters in Jewish history, Moses, the lawgiver, the deliverer. Not only that, there's a second accusation, and that is that, they, that he had ridiculed the temple and the rule of the temple. And it's almost as though they are standing in the place of the temple itself where this is occurring, and they level this against him. This man speaks against the holy place, the temple, and he speaks against the, the law. And so finally, the high priests, they hear, or the, the Sanhedrin, they hear this and they began to pelt Stephen with one charge after uh, the other. And finally, the high priest, which is probably Caiaphas, the same man that, would condemn, that condemned Jesus earlier, says to him in chapter 7 and verse 1, he says to him, the high priest said, Are these things so? Did you ridicule the temple? And the law. Did you blaspheme Moses and God? So Stephen, he's going to answer these allegations in a speech that is 53 verses long and covers 2,000 years of Hebrew history. Okay, so he's going to take them way back. And, and for us to get our minds around, that's so hard for us because we're a country that is what? Around not even 300 years old, and he's going to cross 2,000 years of Hebrew history, and he's going to bring it before the Sanhedrin, and he's going to throw it in their face, okay, as he answers these charges. And so in the speech, he binds Hebrew history with a, with a single theme that is scarlet throughout the Old Testament, and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is coming. The anointed one is coming, and that's what Stephen's defense is going to center around. Though it's going to come at the very end of it, if that's the one that's really going to bite. Okay, So it's going to be about uh, Jesus. And so even though I you know, touched on it briefly, Luke, he, he has this lengthy sermon, or records this lengthy sermon in its entirety, because of it being a significant case for, for Christianity. So Stephen, this great apologist, he defends and glorifies Jesus, and he speaks about two purposes. So he has two purposes in mind. The first purpose is this. He is wanting to answer the facts, or the facts concerning the charges that have been leveled against him. Remember, he has been accused of being a blasphemer. Uh, that means that he has dishonored God. You can't, there are probably no more stronger words in the scriptures than to say that someone is a blasphemer. Okay, so they have accused him of being a blasphemer. So Stephen in his, in his, his defense is going to talk uh, uh, real highly, number one, about God. He's going to talk highly about Moses. He's going to speak about the, the temple, and, and in each one, he's going to make his points really stick. For instance, look at chapter 7, if you will, and notice verses 36 through 38 of chapter 7. 36 through 38. Let's start with verse 35. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be uh, both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of an angel who appeared to him on, in the thorn 
bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers. He received living oracles to pass on to you. He is really elevating God, and he's really elevating Moses, and he's really elevating an angel, he says, that has been with you, that is coming. He's speaking about Jesus here, okay? And so he does it. Look at verses 47 through 50. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. He's talking about, remember David, well, verse 46, David found favor in God's sight, asked that he might find a dwelling place for God of J the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Now listen to verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for me, me my repose? Was it not my hands which made all these things? So what he has done, he has elevated God, he's elevated Jesus, he has elevated the the temple, or Moses, he has elevated the temple, and he has said, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. You guys are making a big deal about this holy place, but there's a temple much larger than that, that is much more important, that is bigger than that one. There is one coming that is even bigger than, than Moses. And so, you know, Linsky said this, what could, a blasphemous about, what could be blasphemous about a man who spoke as reverently, reverently and as biblically as this man did? In other words, you, your charge is, is that he is blaspheming Moses and the law and the temple, and yet you just heard his words. And his words elevate all of those things. So he is really not blasphemous. Secondly, Stephen endeavors to confront his sin with the truth. He reminds them that the scriptures taught that a prophet like Moses would appear. A prophet known as the Messiah. Look at verse 37. This is the Moses whom God said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Moses has said that, okay? And he's talking about the Messiah that is to come. The scripture also said that God would not dwell in temples made with hands. Look at verse 48. However, the, mo however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as Amos said. Okay, So they puts all this stock in the temple, and he says, and God doesn't even dwell in temples made with hands. And we know from past sermons, I think just a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21, where he tells us that the church now is the temple of God. When the church gathers together, we are the temple of God, and God dwells in us, or among us. Even Charles, in his, his prayer this evening, talked about that very thing, that God is with us, above us, and around us, and yes, even in us. Or think about 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your what? With your body. And so he talks about these things here. And he concludes, or, or he concludes by saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. However, he says the Jewish leaders, including the Sanhedrin, 
they are the ones that have sinned because they're the ones who, number one, rejected the Christ and two, have been disobedient to the law or disobedient to the words of, of Moses. So what you have here in this defense, you have disobedience versus obedience. You have belief versus unbelief. And they become the resounding themes of this, this message. And so it's almost like if you were to hear a drum being tapped, the drum is going to start tapping kind of quietly. And then it's going to get louder until it's been banged on. And that's where he is driving because what he's going to say, he says, listen, Abraham and Moses and Joseph, they all obeyed God. But, but Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs, and the Israelites in the wilderness, they disobeyed God. And they even rejected and repudiated Moses as their leader and as the uh, deliverer. And so this theme goes into a crescendo until at the very end of it, he calls the, the Sanhedrin a bunch of stiff-necked men and really plows into them. I mean, he, holds, he, he doesn't hold back at all. And so the self-righteous Sanhedrin members are, are not a part of believing Israel. They're like their uh, fathers. They're unrighteous, unbelieving Israel. And so as you analyze Stephen's message, this has all been an introduction, by the way, for the next hour, uh, you discover that it encompasses these themes in a broad survey of the Old Testament. And so I think there are six subjects that I just want to run by you. They're not going to be long subjects, but I just want you to think about. The first one is this, is that he surveys and, and emphasizes God's relationship with the Jews, beginning with Abraham, with the call of Abraham, and he ends it with the prophets and summarizes it with Jesus Christ, okay? And so he has six subjects within his defense that corresponds to the Old Testament books, okay? The first one is this, in, verses, in chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, we looked at this this morning, so we're not going to go into it much. Uh, he calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia, northern Iraq today. He calls them out of Ur of the Chaldees, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And he leaves that place, and he goes to Haran. His father dies in Haran, and then he goes on south, and God leads him to the wilderness, and he ends up in Bathsheba, where it says God didn't even give him a foot of that land. But he has promised him that he would make him a great nation and that all people would be saved because uh, of him. And so God promised that his offspring would possess and enjoy uh, his protection. From Abraham came Isaac, from Isaac came uh, Jacob, and from Jacob comes the 12 patriarchs. Okay? And among them are Joseph. And remember we said this morning that they were jealous of Joseph. And through treachery, they give him the highest level of betrayal. They sell him into a bondage. And yet God was with him. And he rescues him. And he grants him favor even in Egypt until he becomes second only to a Pharaoh. And then he makes him the governor, if you will, of all Egypt and his household. And then he tells us in the narrative that Joseph later is reunited with his family because they come to live in Egypt because of the famine that was in that part of the world. 
And then he, in a very quickly, he says, there's 400 years that this is going to happen. And after 400 years of being eventually enslaved in Egypt, God would raise up Moses. And Moses would come on the scene in verses 17 through 41, which takes up a large body of his defense. So remember, they have said that you don't respect the temple and you don't respect Moses, and yet he is going to give all of his speech that surrounds uh, Moses, but he's going to tell them some things about that history that involved Moses and the children of Israel that they're not going to li- they're not going to like to to listen to. So God chooses Moses to deliver them to free them, but the Israelites they previously remember they reject him, and when he comes back they even repudiate him and they grumble against him. And remember I said that one of the legacies that Moses leaves behind is a life of graciousness because he lived among people that were a constant disappointment. You know, they constantly were grumbling and complaining about the things that were uh, going on. And yet, even then, he leads them out of bondage in verses 30 through 38 is what Stephen's defense says. He says of them in verse 39, he says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts to turn back to Egypt. That's in verse 39. And then when you look at verse 41, it says, And not only did they not uh, follow the uh, following obedience to Moses that God had sent them to deliver them from them, they even go so far as to erect a golden calf to worship uh, God in, in, instead. We're going to see something later on that's absolutely mind-blowing to me. So what he's telling us here is that God raised up a men who would be men of faith. They're going to be the examples of what faithfulness was about. And then God protected and freed our fathers through Moses, but even they gave Moses a hard time and were oftentimes disobedient and repudiated him. And then God tested and instructed their fathers in verses 42 down through verse 44. Moses, he built a portable worship tent or a tabernacle, okay? And the Hebrews used it as they transverse the, the, uh, traverse the, the, uh, the land there, okay? And it followed them wherever they went. And as Hebrews traversed, God was with them, instructed them. But quoting from the prophet Moses, Stephen reminds his audience that the Hebrews still were living in sin by taking along several things with them. Look at verse 43. I find this absolutely amazing, okay? Because remember, God has delivered them out of the land of Egypt. He has helped them cross over the Red Sea when Pharaoh has their backs up against the water, and he delivers them. They've come to to Sinai. They'll receive the law, but listen to what they bring along with them, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Verse 43, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramtha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you from beyond Babylon. That, isn't that crazy? Have you ever, I, I don't know why I never saw that before. But here they come out of bondage. They're following the one true God. And what do they drag along with them? Not only do they make a calf of gold, they also drag, drag along two gods with them. Even a tabernacle to Moloch and to the star god Ramtha. That's with them through all of the, and that to me is just, that's breaking the first two commandments. One run, two zoo. Run away from any other guy except for one guy to make new other graven images before you. And they have already broken those two right off the bat. And so Israel's record of unbelief become by, by, is, is 
shown by quickly surveying the next three periods. Verse 45 here, look at verse 45. And having received it, the, uh, received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossession of the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. In one short verse, he talks about the period of conquest of the land of Canaan. One verse. This is the conquest of the land of Canaan in verse, 40, uh, verse uh, 45 here. And then in verses 46 through 47, uh, Stephen proceeds uh, to King David and his son Solomon, who received God's blessing because of their faith to build the temple. So in, one, in two verses, they're going to build the temple. But Solomon will build a temple that's going to be permanent for God to dwell in. But then later, in verse 48, as, we, as we've already seen, say, seen, Isaiah is going to say that, listen, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. And he says in verse 49, heaven is my throne. The earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Then he communicates with the fathers in verses 48 through 50 through Isaiah the prophet. You see, what, here's what Stephen is saying to them. Stephen is saying to them that the Sanhedrin council, these 70 men, are super powerful individuals, okay? And to some degree, they have the power of life and death. They can really call some shots here, okay? The Romans aren't going to mess with them a whole lot. Because they're going to say, you Jews need to take care of your own business, and we'll take care of government business. So they have a lot of power. But what, what Stephen is telling them is, he says, listen, there, there's someone bigger than you guys. There is one that is bigger than you. There is this temple here that's big, but there's something that's bigger than the, the temple. And at this stage... Um, it's set to reveal the religious leader's sin, if you will, and their rejection of the God of heaven, their rejection of the Son, their rejection of God's sovereign plan. He's going to put those all before them. And when he does it, there's going to be a confrontation that's going to lead to death. Throughout this sermon here, or this defense, he has used the phrase, our fathers or uh, our fathers, uh, like nine times. He's going to say that over again. Our fathers did this. He will, comp he will include himself with that, okay? Our fathers did this. Our fathers did that. But then he eventually is going to get down, and he's going to say, your fathers. Your fathers did this. They're not my fathers, because I've accepted the Messiah, okay? I know there's a one that's bigger than the temple, but your fathers did not. And that's who you guys are a part of. So what he does is he turns the table completely by putting the accusers, the witnesses, and the court itself in a hopeless defense. Uh, the leaders accused him of blasphemy. But what he's going to tell them is, but you're the blasphemers. They've accused him of rejecting Moses. But he says, but you're the ones that have been, rejected, been rejecting Moses, have been disobedient to the law. You're the ones that guys have done that. I haven't done that. You have done that. And not only have you rejected the law, you've rejected the prophets that God sent to them. Every single one of them they sent to them, you killed. And not only do you reject them, you rejected Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. 
You've rejected all those things. And so these guys are going to become incensed. So like I said, the leaders, they accuse them of blasphemy, but he's saying, you're the blasphemers. You've rejected the law of Moses. No, you guys have rejected the law of Moses. And when that happens, you can see these guys. It's like a boiling pot. There is getting ready to be an explosion in that chamber there because of what Stephen is saying uh, to them. And you can only imagine the passion within those guys as their eyes begin to glare at this guy. They're amazed at what he's saying because they can't refute him. But they don't like what he's saying. And so they begin to glare at these guys. And like crouching tigers, there is death in their eyes. Look at verses 51 through 53. Listen to these words. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murders you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Man, that's a brave preacher right there. And he is beside, he's before these guys, you men who are, un, who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of hearts. Which of the prophets did you guys not kill? Even the Son of God you killed. You're murderers of this. And this events, they begin to fall, tumbling over each other in a heated succession till they can't stand anymore. And eventually their violence erupts and they drag Stephen outside the gates of the city. And they stone him to death. In the midst of this horror, though, God teaches several valuable lessons. And this is for us. The first lesson is this. When confronted with sin, the religious are enraged and they're not receptive. If you look at verse 34, it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They're mad. I mean, they're beyond mad. It says eventually they will, rush, they, will, they will be gnashing their teeth that they quit listening. It says they put their hands over their ears and they rush upon him all at once. And they take him out and they, they kill him. Seventy enraged men. Secondly, when death is near, the Lord, he offers courage but not necessarily escape. What does that mean to us? It means that sometimes we have to take stands. And God may not deliver us, but we're told to be courageous and take a stand. But we're to be faithful. Remember to the church in Revelation 2, I believe it's verse 20, be thou faithful unto death. I'll give you a crown of life. Be courageous. Stand. Your reward is, is, is coming. So the Lord, courage allows Stephen to accept his death. Before Stephen is stoned, Luke tells us that he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In this vision, Stephen, he saw Jesus standing, not sitting. I find that interesting to me. 
You know, over in Hebrews, the, the, uh, the, tenth, or the 12th chapter in verse 10, there it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Here it says that Stephen is being stoned, and he looks into heaven, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing in heaven. I thought to myself, why isn't he sitting? He's generally sitting. Except there are times, I think, that even we as human beings, when we see something incredible or amazing or marvelous happening before us, we automatically stand to our feet. I got to thinking, okay, so what would be some examples of that? The last seconds of a football game, and your team scores the football, and the ball player crosses the goal line, and the crowd is doing all what? They're all standing. No one's sitting. Everybody's standing for that. Or you hear someone, I think it was, I told you about this already, but at Herman Pope's, at his funeral, I remember sitting there and saying to myself, you need to stand and applaud this man. This is such good stuff. This man was such a good person. This is such a godly man. He deserved an applaud. You know, and I told the congregation, the people that day, I said, I've never wanted to applaud anyone at a sermon, but I wanted to applaud this one. And so I, I see Jesus standing there looking at, at Stephen, and Stephen looking up and seeing him, and he knows what he's doing and what he said is right. And Jesus is honoring him because of that, almost like saying, you know, uh, come home. You've done well, come home. As the stones pounded his flesh, Verse 39, 59, he said, he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then in verse, four, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. An amazing man. An amazing defense. And even as they are, are, are gnashing their teeth, and even as they are rejecting everything he's had to say, and even though, even as they are stoning him, to death, he held no ill will towards them. No ill will towards them. No vile. No cutting words. He simply said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against him. Who does that sound like? Well, it sounds like our Lord, doesn't it, as he hung on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they, they do. Lastly, when separated from this life, the Christian is welcomed home and not rejected. In an instant, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? In, an, in, a, in a succession of events that rapidly happen and the violence erupts against him, he's dragged out of the city and then is stoned to death. I mean, we're talking about stones crushing a person until he's dead. And you think, that's so terrible. But in the next moment, he's home. Talking to Eric Neville's dad. And we were talking about COVID. And, and this is not to judge anyone, okay? But I was telling him, he says, I don't know why people are afraid to die. I mean, COVID's going to kill people, but why are you afraid to die? I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid to die. I know I'm going to die. I know that my life is shorter going this way than it was looking backwards, okay? But, okay, so I die. There's a lot worse things that can happen to you as a Christian than to die. 
Because in the moment you die is the moment that you really live. And in that moment, think about Lazarus when he died. It says the angels came and escorted him. Do you, do you even, have you ever thought about how incredible that must be? How incredible that's going to be? And to know that you have stood courageously for the Lord prepared to die if you had to make your defense? And to know the ultimate outcome, maligned, mistreated on earth, he's eagerly embraced by the Lord in heaven. And that's the promise that is given to, to all of us. Death to the Christian is a swinging open door through which we simply pass from this life into heaven itself. And that's, I think that's why Stephen was able to do what he did. And I think that's what will strengthen us to be courageous too in our moment when we need to make a defense. I don't think that Stephen was mean. I don't think that he was harsh. He was truthful. And they hated him for it. But Jesus loved him for it. And so he becomes a great example uh, to us. May we be equally as courageous this week as we live our lives for our, our Lord. So the message is yours. Your, your response is yours as well. While together we stand and while we sing.